0: So I think caffeine's good. I published an article in Scientific American in 2015, uh, and the whole take-home message of the article was that many of the chemicals that are in fruits, vegetables, tea, coffee, plants, uh, that are good for our health, the actual reason they're in the plants, the evolutionary reason is that they are noxious agents, they're toxins, and, and caffeine's a good example. If you take pure caffeine, and put it on your tongue, you wouldn't want to eat it. It's very bitter-tasting. And caffeine's a natural pesticide produced by coffee beans and tea leaves. And if you take coffee beans or tea leaves and put them on your counter uh, and put most any food next to it and there's ants in your house, the ants will avoid the coffee beans and the tea and they'll go for the other things that don't have the bitter-tasting chemicals.
1: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
2: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that there are different ways to kickstart intermittent fasting so it's easier for you. If you don't know about intermittent fasting, this is something I wrote about in the Bulletproof Diet, something I've been doing for a very long time, and basically you eat the same amount of calories you were going to eat. You just eat them in a smaller eating window each day. Basically, you have just lunch and dinner, skip breakfast, or have just lunch and breakfast, skip dinner. It's pretty straightforward. You want to eat in about six or eight hours. So here are a few different options that are out there for you. There's one is fasting for 12 hours a day, uh, and there's studies for each of these things. There's no one fasting for 16 hours. And interestingly, in that study, men fasted for 16 hours and women fasted for 14 hours, because this is gonna sound really, really bad, but men and women are actually different biologically. I, I know that's shocking uh, for some of us. Uh, however, <laughs> um, fasting can be harder on women, and I've seen this over and over uh, since I started the Bulletproof blog, uh, where like the rules are different, and there's a couple really popular posts about you know why intermittent fasting can be bad for women um, that I've written over the time. There's also fasting two days a week, which is called the 5-2 diet. There's alternate day fasting, where you fast every other day or have limited calories every other day. There's one weekly 24-hour fast, known as eat, stop, eat. Uh, People just skip an occasional meal. And then there's this OMAD, or the warrior diet, which is a 20-hour fasting window with a huge meal at night, uh, steak and whatnot. And you could do the same thing with a huge meal in the morning if you really wanna carry around steak, eggs, and whatever else you're eating. Um, all day long. Um, uh, but that might have some circadian benefits. So bottom line is six hours or sorry, six meals a day so your body doesn't go to starvation mode, it is absolute bullshit. And it is a way to feel crappy. <laughs> um, and probably stay fat. At least that's what happened to me on something like that. And that's not to say you couldn't do that sometimes, especially if you're working out a lot, but if you want to do that on a regular basis as a regular human being. Uh, You might not like the results of that, uh, but the uh, number of processed food snacks you eat may go up dramatically if you do that. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. For a seven-day free trial. Uh, today's guest is the foremost scientific researcher on the topic of intermittent fasting, a guy that I'm really, uh, really excited to talk with uh, because there's so much academic research that goes back uh, quite a while now about what intermittent fasting does. But it's one of these precious pieces of knowledge that hasn't entered our consciousness, uh, where it, it sort of it has been fringe knowledge and. It's just now becoming something that not just biohackers do, but your mom might do. In fact, my mom does do it. And it makes a really big difference. Uh, so not only is today's guest a top expert on what intermittent fasting does for you, it, he's also an expert on what it does for your brain, and he's one of the foremost researchers looking at cellular and molecular mechanisms of neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. If you read my book, Headstrong, I actually referenced some of his work in that book. I'm talking about Dr. Mark Matson, who's a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins. Welcome to the show, Mark.
0: Thanks, Dave, I'm looking forward to talking to you. I've followed your Bulletproof website for a long time, and when I can, uh, listen to your podcasts, which are always both informative and entertaining, so I'm looking forward to our discussion. Wow, well, thank you, Uh,
2: I did not know that until we just got on and you mentioned that. So I'm truly honored because, (laughs) I mean, in addition to the intro I just gave you, I mean, you are chief of the Laboratory of Neuroscience at the National Institute on Aging, at least you were until you just retired last month. Uh, So in in terms of the anti-aging world that I live in, uh, you're sort of a godfather of that. (laughs) So the fact you've ever heard the show is like epic, thank you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, You know, there's a big one of the big bottlenecks in uh, getting science uh, translated into the real world is uh, communicating to the public. And there's many science scientists that either avoid intentionally or just don't want to bother with taking the time to learn how to to communicate with the general public. So, uh, you know, outlets like yours, which really are evidence-based and communicate things in a way people can understand, I think our, our values So, um, you know, I do, uh, and these podcasts are easy to listen to. I can even be, you know, working on a manuscript while I've got a podcast in the background. So, um, yeah, I, I do find time to listen.
2: Okay. That's really cool. I, I'm going to go there. There are not a lot of people here who can listen to one thing and write another thing? Have you always <laughs> had that superpower?
0: Uh, I don't know if it's a super. I think it started by you know I'm a, a NPR nerd, so I'll uh, I'll have, uh, and I telework. I even when I was lab chief at NIH, I used to telework one and sometimes two days a week, and I just have NPR on in the background, and I'd kind of tune in and out. There's place. Certain points one, one writes that you can kind of relax a little because you know what you don't have to concentrate so much and uh, yeah so I've learned to do that.
2: One of my uh, my buddies, real dynamic guy uh, named Andrew, and I'm not going to drop his last name because I think he kind of likes to hide behind the behind the curtains. But he's uh, uh, I had dinner at his house and wrote about it in Game Changers, and he knows you know. So I'm talking about um, entrepreneur friend. He told me that years ago he started using Bluetooth headphones before they actually had the Bluetooth standard done and he listened to audiobooks 24 hours a day like all the the nonfiction stuff just to learn things and he he just finally said after two years of it my brain just started learning when I wasn't paying attention but he had to stop worrying about losing something and just assume some of it's going in uh, and I haven't gotten to that level yet but I have been able to listen to one thing and write on uh, my latest book but not the whole time sometimes I would but the load on my brain felt pretty high. Do you feel more loaded if you listen to a podcast and write a manuscript? I'm fascinated by this. I wasn't getting interviewed. Well,
0: well no, <laughs> so, so I'll, you know, I'll I'll pause or turn off the volume on what I'm listening to when I get to some, where I have to really think okay. for like 10, 20 minutes straight or something.
2: That, all right, that, that's a neat little technique. I think most people listening are going, oh my God, it's possible to write and listen? Anyway, I'm, that that's a new skill for me. So, all right, you also talked about the difficulty of translating science from academia uh, into public knowledge, and I think some of my scientist friends are a little bit frustrated. They're saying, I, you know, "I've spent my life doing all this crazy work, um, but no one knows about it." And, and so they're they're kind of feeling like I, I, I did my part, but you've done something interesting um, in academia and, and for research. There's an index of productivity and citation impact. So you're. H index is over 200, which in academia means you're super rock star, gold record label, and it, it, it's a pretty pretty good number.
0: And it's based on your total career, so it also means I'm getting old. <laughs> okay,
2: that's a fair <laughs> point. But you've been cited 150,000 times, or your work has been cited, so you're, you're up there, right? But at the same time, you have three and a half million TED views on your talk. About intermittent fasting, so you've crossed—I'm going to call it crossing the chasm—to to butcher that term—into uh, all right. You can now talk to the public about intermittent fasting and reach large numbers. And you've talked to the academic and nutrition and research and neuroscience world. What was the trick for you as a—I'm going to call it a hardcore aging neuroscience guy—to cross over and talk to the public? Well,
0: uh, talking talking to friends and even students in the lab uh, and trying to learn to explain things initially in a very easy way. And then it's by looking at their uh, facial expressions, you can tell whether they're understanding it or not. And if they're not back off and, and you know, give some analogy or uh, take a little different pathway to to try to help them understand what I'm trying to convey, so I think it's just a matter of doing it. Uh, practice. It's practice, yeah.
2: Okay, and just something you set out to do was was this a goal you set or it just emerged over time?
0: It just emerged, yeah.
2: Okay, cool. Although, n- uh, and n- I,
0: I- now that I'm retired from NIA, uh, so I'm kind of semi-retired. I'm still gonna. I'm still involved with working with clinicians at Hopkins doing trials of intermittent fasting in various patient populations. And I'm writing a book, finally, two books, actually. The first is going to be kind of with an intermittent fasting theme and a historical perspective and a lot of hardcore science, hopefully explained in a way people can understand. And then the second book is going to be peer neuroscience, um, uh, which is the one I'm um, really excited about, it's gonna be something like thought patterns, how the brain understands and escapes reality.
2: Uh, okay, that which is a, yeah. that is gonna be fascinating. In fact, when you write that book, we'll have you on, a, a big part of my understanding of the world is really, it's the challenge of not believing your own story so you can see what's really going on, <laughs> including around food, right? The, the story in your head is, if I don't have lunch, I'm gonna die, and it's probably not really true, <laughs>
0: okay. We wouldn't be we wouldn't be here, would
2: we? Uh, exactly, but man, it sure feels true at the time, uh, and and that's you know the the challenge of fasting. And uh, in 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 a nutshell, is is you know, how do you how do you feel good when you do that? Well, let's let's get in uh, on on fasting, and just go in for people who all right. You know, we've heard about fasting. You have pictures of you know people in robes fasting for days on end and things like that. Talk to me about the difference between calorie restriction and actual fasting, and what you've learned about that over the course of your career.
0: Uh, The the differences have to do with the frequency of food intake. Um, A typical human liver can store about 700 calories worth of glucose in the form of glycogen, and if you're just kind of moderate activity uh, are like we are now, it takes 10-12 hours to use up those 700 calories, and then when those calories go, then you start using fats. The fatty acids are released, and those are the precursors of the ketones. And so it's possible to reduce your daily calorie intake, but eat, as you mentioned in your introduction, eat meals frequently. Every time you eat a meal, you replenish the glucose stores in your liver, and so your fats are never mobilized. Your ketones never go up. So fasting, you know, uh, by definition, uh, if you're in a fasted ketogenic ketogenic state, that's a sufficient time period with not eating to be designated as fasting. Uh, if your ketones never go up, you haven't. Uh, Hit a fasting state.
2: Okay. What do you do? You've been studying this stuff for a long time. What What do you do when you wake up in the morning? Like, what's a typical day for you? What's a typical week?
0: I never eat breakfast. And I usually try to work out midday, mid-day or early afternoon. Yep. I used to run a lot, do a lot of trail running, I had some knee osteoarthritis because I had a meniscus tear probably. Yeah. But, um, so now I'm mountain biking. Uh maybe two or three days a week I'm on the trails on mountain bike. The other days I usually just do some walking or stationary bike. But I I pretty much always do that before I eat. Around midday, early afternoon, and then I eat all my food within a usually a six hour time window, sometimes five hours. Um so that I, the rationale for exercising at the end of the fasting period is its pretty simple. You get an extra boost in the ketogenic state, but there's also um, a number of, of what we call pathways or signaling mechanisms that are activated by exercise, uh, uh, both exercise and fasting, to get an amplification of those pathways. Is, is this can, mTOR
2: we, you're talking about?
0: Well, Yeah, that's one. So, and autophagy. Ah,
2: okay. Uh, Some of my favorite words. Can you define them for people who don't know what they are? (laughs) mTOR and autophagy. uh,
0: Okay, and and this again relates to the notion of the the metabolic switch from glucose to ketones and what happens then. So when your glucose levels are high normal or particularly after eating a meal, uh, there's a pathway called the mTOR pathway in cells that is activated. And that pathway stimulates the uptake of the glucose. It also stimulates the uptake of amino acids Mm -hmm. from from proteins in your diet. And then the cells increase their protein synthesis and they're in kind of a growth state. Uh, However, while they're in the growth state, they're also accumulating molecular garbage. Mm -hmm. So when cells are in a growth state, and your your glucose protein levels are up in your blood uh, it can help the cells grow, but if that stays chronically on there's accumulation of uh, molecules damaged by free radicals, dysfunctional mitochondria yeah those those damaged molecules are normally removed from the cells by a process called autophagy it 's the cell's garbage disposal
2: and in fact we just had a recent interview on metabolic autophagy um that that was very well received and uh it, it's a very important thing like getting rid of the garbage and you're saying that if you do an intermittent fast and then exercise at the end of it you're going to turn up autophagy and you're going to turn up mTOR which allows you to take amino acids and put it into the cells or no because those don't go at the same time right
0: oh uh, so, so no they they go up so the during the fasting and exercise, mTOR pathway is inhibited. Mm-hmm. The cells the cells go into a stress resistance mode, and they're they're trying to conserve energy molecules, recycle uh, proteins. So autophagy it's a garbage disposal, but it's also a recycling bin. So
2: you can you can incinerate garbage to make energy.
0: To make energy, but also to 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 um, break down damaged proteins, but then take the amino acids from those proteins that are not damaged and use them to make new proteins. Okay,
2: and you get this from uh, fasting? A-
0: and That's exercise both, okay. and when you combine them, you get a further enhancement of the autophagy. Then, Then when you eat and rest, then what happens is the cells have cleaned out the garbage, and then when you eat and rest, the mTOR pathway is active. The cells synthesize a lot of new proteins, and they can grow, for example, to your muscle cells. Uh, when you exercise regularly, your muscle cells don't get bigger during the exercise. They get physically bigger during the rest period. But...
2: So it's about but, recovery.
0: Right, but if you if you don't exercise, the cells never get signals that enhance their ability to grow when you do rest. So right. so these cycles of metabolic challenge recovery, challenge recovery, and the challenges being fasting and exercise, and then uh, eating and resting, sleeping is very important. Those intermittent challenges, we think, can optimize health.
2: Here's another question, and and you may have gone into this in some of your prodigious research. I I will admit I haven't read all of it. Uh, When I wrote The Bulletproof Diet, I was looking for things that would suppress uh, mTOR so it would bound back more strongly. And the three things I found were certainly exercise, which you talked about, um, fasting, which you talked about, but there was also studies on coffee and mTOR. Um, Have you looked at the effect of coffee on either autophagy or mTOR?
0: We haven't, and it's a good question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, There's there's a lot of excitement from a it's actually a drug development standpoint in rapamycin, and I'm sure you've heard about that. Yes, Um, but that's a little bit scary uh, because you can inhibit mtor too much, and if you inhibit it too much too long, that's not good either. So again you know, these cycles of, but, um, as far as caffeine goes, my opinion is it, it's good for your cells. Uh, but probably not if you have caffeine levels high 24 seven.
2: Yeah. That whole sleep thing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think what most people do then, you know, drinking coffee or tea in the morning, uh, while fasting is a good idea that caffeine certainly boosts your alertness and enhances your cognition. And, to, and your ketones,
2: right? Yeah. Cunane's work at UC San Diego yeah. showed a ketone boost yeah. from it.
0: Yep. Okay. So I think caffeine's good. We, I published an article in Scientific American in 2015, uh, and the whole take-home message of the article was that many of the chemicals that are in fruits, vegetables, tea, coffee, plants, Uh, that are good for our health, the actual reason they're in the plants, the evolutionary reason, is that they are noxious agents. They're toxins. Right. And and caffeine's a good example. If you take pure caffeine and put it on your tongue, you wouldn't want to eat it. It's very Uh, bitter-tasting. And caffeine's a natural pesticide produced by coffee beans and tea leaves. And if you take coffee beans or tea leaves and put them on your counter uh, uh, and put most any food next to it and there's ants in your house, the ants will avoid the coffee beans and the tea and they'll go for the other things that don't have the bitter tasting chemicals in them.
2: It's fascinating. Nicotine's that way too, and I mean, caffeine and nicotine are two of the smartest drugs from nature that increase human cognitive performance, and they are both kill bugs, uh, which doesn't mean they're bad for us. uh, Although nicotine in high doses from any
0: mechanism is. What's interesting here, Dave, is that some of those chemicals activate the exact same responses in cells that are activated by fasting and exercise. Wow, and one of those one of those pathways, which I'm sure you've heard of, is the NRF2 yes. ARE pathway. Uh, it's for example, there's a chemical sulforaphane mm-hmm. that's present in high levels in broccoli, broccoli and sprouts, green leafy yeah. vegetables. and but the key thing of this pathway is it's an antioxidant defense pathway. So when this NRF2 ARE pathway is activated by exercise, fasting, some chemicals in plants, then cells boost their intrinsic antioxidant defenses and are more resistant to being damaged by free radicals. Um, And this this is really why the trials are like vitamin E, vitamin A, vitamin C and a lot of different diseases, cancers, etc., pretty much uniformly failed. What you don't you don't want to swamp your cells continuously with these chemicals that scavenge the free radicals because then the pathways such as the NRF2 pathway are never activated. Yeah. Because they're activated by the stress of the fasting, the exercise or the chemical
2: it's interesting that free radicals themselves are signaling molecules and I, I interviewed uh Dr oh jeez uh Dr Rowan and then later how can I blank on his name uh that's really strange I must need more ketones because I, I don't lose <laughs> names that often uh trying at the tip of my brain uh, anyhow one of the preeminent ozone therapy guys um, who looked at the ability of the free radicals from ozone as a signaling molecule to trigger mitochondrial repair, uh, not from breathing ozone, uh, but from other medical uses of it, uh, even just you know, topical on the skin and things like that. And it, it's it's really interesting. If you take those antioxidants you talked about before exercise, you don't get the benefits of the exercise. That's right. Um, what about during fasting? I mean, should this mean uh, when you're when you're in a fasted state, don't take your vitamin E?
0: No one, as far as I know, and I okay. I know this field pretty well, yeah. not, no <laughs> one's done those experiments with fasting. It's only with exercise. All
2: right. Okay, somebody listening <laughs> is going to do those experiments because all the right people are listening, at least I'm I'm going to tell myself that. Uh, so this is a fascinating thing. You want, If you're working on your PhD, you're trying to figure out what to do, you're going to go to school, seriously, investigate this. Just do fasted mice or whatever animals you like working with or humans, my favorite guinea pigs, and uh, see what happens if you fast and just look at all the different markers of metabolism, maybe urine, organic acids, and see what happens if someone takes a fistful of vitamin E, vitamin C, even glutathione, which I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I use that during a fast versus after a fast versus after exercise. We already know what it does to exercise, but if fasting and exercise are kind of mimics of each other, I'll bet you that you should take antioxidants a while after the fast not during the fast or maybe at the beginning but somebody tell me the answer so i can write about it and i can do it <laughs> if you had to bet what the answer would be what would you bet
0: uh, i would bet it'd be similar to exercise yeah
2: okay yeah interesting i've never thought of this before but i i would agree with you that i'd place my bet in that same spot uh that said all right let's uh, uh let's look at that now would you consider the poly- the there's many different polyphenols but, but I mean, I make a polyphenol blend. There's chocolate polyphenols, there's coffee polyphenols, there's oregano, and you know, pretty much any kind of flavorful vegetable, fruit kind of thing, uh, or herb, especially. Uh, would you look at avoiding those during an intermittent fast, or would you consider those to be useful during an intermittent fast?
0: Those the the uh, the noxious, the bitter-tasting <laughs> ones are probably useful.
2: Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, I don't know any delicious polyphenols uh, <laughs> off the top yeah. of my head. They're all pretty, yeah. pretty nasty tasting. Um, other than, uh, it turns out people who are fast caffeine metabolizers, they don't taste caffeine as bitter as people who are slow caffeine metabolizers, uh, which is really interesting. Yeah. So there's some sort of little, you know, subcellular mechanism that's like you should get more of this. Um, but okay, so I'm going to keep doing that in the morning. Okay, oh, here's this is a great question. There are lots of studies on mice done with water only fasting, and so there are people out there who say, "Oh, well, they just had water, so you should only have water." But all the stuff I know, even like traditional Chinese medicine, yeah. they at least had tea or coffee or uh, you know pine bark tea or whatever the heck, depending on where you're from. Uh, so I always say, look, when you're in men fasting, have your coffee, have your tea, you know, enjoy your life. But the purists are like, "Oh, you know, we don't know what it does to your gut bacteria." Where are you on the spectrum of you should only do what the mice did versus have a little fun?
0: Uh, I think it's actually a good idea, at least from the standpoint of the brain, to drink tea or coffee. Uh, during a fast? During, yeah. Okay. yeah. yeah.
2: All right. And you'd be fine with uh, an herbal tea as well then? Yeah. Okay. Got it. And you know, there's all sorts of different herbal teas you can do. Uh, what about mushrooms? Uh-huh. Medicinal um, mushroom kind of teas, and people love. I don't like chaga very much at all, but I, I've really gotten some benefits from the lion's mane. I just had the life cycle guys on about that, and I just had Paul Stamets on, who's you know a famous yeah, mushroom yeah. guy. Yeah. Is there? on I, I love Paul. He's was, he's was so cool. Is there anything that you've come across on using mushroom extracts, not actually eating them, because that'd be calories during fasting?
0: Uh, no studies. Uh. I am interested in mushrooms. I last few years, I started foraging. I've got Paul's big, thick mycelium book.
2: running. I, I think I've got it right uh, back there.
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I actually bought a, some uh, some my uh, what did I get oyster and shiitake mycelia from his company in the spring, and they're out. In the wood chips right now. Oh, beautiful. Uh, yeah.
2: I'm um, I'm just starting commercially growing uh, cordyceps on my farm here in BC, uh, which is really cool. Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: yeah and, and Paul's out. He's from your neck of the woods. Yeah, he's
2: one island over. Yeah. I, he came out for the interview. It was, it was fantastic. Sounds like you guys know each other.
0: I don't know him, but, uh, you know, okay. and, but I, fascinating chemicals and mushrooms. A lot more work needs to be done. There are, Mm-hmm. There are some reasonable studies with things like turkey tail tea and some of the things Paul talked about, but on the other hand, it's an area where there's there's a big need for a lot of better science. Um, yeah, as you know, finally they're starting to do studies now with um, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Uh, one of the scientists at Hopkins, in fact, has shown in a couple published studies now that. The um, psilocybin mushrooms are beneficial in people with depression, and uh, you know, th- and they're not addictive. These, yeah. In, in, in contrast to the opioids, right, which is a huge problem, th- these chemicals and mushrooms that seem to have some interesting effects on the nervous system uh, are not addictive. You know, which would seem yeah. to be a, a big advantage.
2: It seems nonsensical that alcohol, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, nicotine, and uh, the opiates are legal uh, and cause a lot of harm. But I don't know how anyone could be really addicted to the strong hallucinogens. There are people who dissociate disso- because they're so traumatized. But these are—it's not an addiction. That's that's a just deep-seated trauma response. Uh, which is uh, a different animal. At least that's my wife says so, and she's a, a, a Karolinska trained drug and alcohol addiction emergency doctor. So I'm gonna I'm gonna believe her there. Huh? Uh, which is there are people who abuse them, but they're not addicted uh, versus yeah, the actual yeah. addiction. Yeah. Um. All right. I'm. Uh. I'm really interested in compounds that I know that you're interested in. Uh, nerve growth factor (NGF) and BDNF, brain derived nootropic factor, and I, I wrote about those in Headstrong and I've used, uh, there's old studies on mushrooms, there's a compound, I use one of my supplements uh, from the fruit of coffee, a polyphenol that raises BDNF. Uh, Coffee itself probably does, according to some other research. Fasting, I believe, raises BDNF. Can you walk through your perspective on increasing nerve growth factor and brain-derived nootropic factor? What do you believe works and how important is it for living a long time with a good brain?
0: Well. Both BDNF and NGF uh, are important for the development of the nervous system, for the survival, growth, synapse, formation, and then the fine-tuning of the structure of the brain during development. Uh, If you eliminate the genes of either NGF or BDNF from mice, they die during development, so they're critical. In the adult brain, Uh, BDNF is particularly important throughout the brain, all over the brain, in promoting the growth, survival of neurons. It's critical for learning and memory. Um, And it's also, we we showed in my lab when I was back at the University of Kentucky in the uh, early 1990s that BDNF protects nerve cells against various types of stress oxidative stress, metabolic stress, something we call excitotoxic stress, which is uh, uh, unconstrained neural network activity like occurs dramatically in epilepsy, but we think to less dramatic extent in brain aging and Alzheimer's disease. So um, NGF, on the other hand, there are only a small but important group of brain cells that are responsive to BDNF in the adult brain. Um, Exercise is a potent stimulator of BDNF production in the brain. Intermittent fasting stimulates BDNF production, and the combination of exercise and fasting get an additive effect in boosting BDNF. And uh, I had a graduate student, Alexis Stranahan, who showed that many years ago in, in studies where she combined running wheel exercise and daily time restricted feeding, uh, uh, you know, daily short fast, and found she got uh, additive effect increasing BDNF and then uh, actually protecting synapses against diabetes, which is kind of another angle on this. It turns out that uh, obesity and diabetes are not only bad for your heart, they're bad for your brain. Yeah. Particularly as you get, as you get older. And we think that intermittent fasting, well, we actually know it. Yeah. Intermittent fasting and exercise can reverse diabetes and obesity, uh, in humans. If a person can switch their eating pattern and get on an exercise program and, and BDNF plays a role in that. So in, uh, Individuals who are obese uh, or, and or diabetic, BDNF levels are lower in their brains compared to normal weight, metabolically healthy people.
2: One of the things that, that really changed my life when I weighed 300 pounds and I was having all kinds of cognitive dysfunction in my, my 20s and early 30s, um, I started using a thing they called the Russian sleep machine. A cerebral electrical stimulation with alternating current between the ears. Very different than the TDCS we use now. Uh, and it turns out there are studies that show both TDCS and uh, CES, or alternating current, raise BDNF very meaningfully. Oh, that's and interesting, yeah. I'd go to sleep with this thing, and, and my I swear my brain helped to turn back on. And uh, now, at 40 years of in the brain upgrade place that I started, um, we use uh, a clinical grade you know, neuroscience level uh, system that lets you have specific frequencies that are tunable and controllable by a computer. Um, and we do that to prime the brain for uh, for better learning of altered states that you learn through neurofeedback. And y- you go all the way down to uh, companies like Halo, uh, who's been on the show, who makes you know, a TDCS headset. When I do exercise, um, I uh, especially lately, I can't, I can't keep up very well with my nine-year-old at ping pong. Okay, and ping pong is a high reaction time thing. It keeps your brain young. Doctor Amon told me to buy the ping pong table. I did. So I started saying, "All right, I need some more BDNF here." Like my my son's kicking my butt, and we've got the pro grade, you know, carbon fiber paddles, and we're going at it like he's good. Either that or I'm bad, uh, but I was not a I was not a good competitor for him. So I started running the electrical current over my brain. Uh, again, uh, using the halo, and all of a sudden my learning went up. And it, like, 20 minutes after doing it, it's like the ball slows down and I, I can hit it. And so I believe that's a BDNF sort of thing. But have you seen electrical stimulation, magnets, lights, uh, going to the bottom of swimming pools? I, I don't know, any other crazy tech like that that's going to make our brains more plastic?
0: That Yeah, that, the answer is... Yes, and at first I want to go back to when you were young and, and obese, right? And you did this alternating yeah. current stimulation in your brain. Did your did that reduce your appetite? The reason I ask is it turns out that BDNF suppresses appetite. Interesting. This is uh, I don't and, think it did. Um, I'm just I'm
2: I'm going back to all the different times I'd use it. I would oftentimes use it when I was sleeping or like when I wanted to write, even when I was writing, um, actually all my books, there were times when I'd I'd change the frequency on my device to go up into the gamma ranges. Um, But Did
0: it help you lose weight?
2: It could have. I I feel like the thing that really helped me lose weight was getting rid of the inflammatory foods, You know, things that were inhibiting mitochondrial function was the number one thing. Uh, But it could have had an impact, but for me it was, wow, I just went into ketosis, and then I came out of ketosis and I went in and out and that got half my weight down, and then the other half was, oh, hey, guess what? Certain foods are gonna make you inflamed no matter what, so you gotta change the type yeah. of fat that makes you go into contosis. Yeah. You gotta get rid of the nightshades if you're sensitive like I am, and and that was the, kind of the genesis of the whole Bulletproof Diet approach, which was these foods may or may not be good for you, but don't assume they're all good, because if you're still fat after you tried hard. <laughs> so for me, it was yeah. finding the guilty yeah. suspects.
0: So let's get back to uh, stimulation BD. and BDF. Yeah. Um, BDNF was discovered in an animal model of epileptic seizures. There was a lab out in California that was uh, just kind of looking for genes that are responsive to epileptic seizures. And BDNF is highly responsive. So as you know, uh, one of the treatments for depression, which is still used in people who don't respond well to antidepressant drugs is electroconvulsive shock therapy right and it's it's highly antidepressant and it's highly potent in inducing bdnf expression
2: wow i didn't know that
0: Uh, also the the antidepressant drugs themselves the serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors prozac paxil etc they increase bdnf levels in the brain and in animal studies if you if you, uh, we have ways we can genetically manipulate the mice so that they can't respond to BDNF. Uh, those mice do not show an antidepressant response to those drugs. So altogether, the available evidence says BDNF is, is an, it's an antidepressant, endogenous antidepressant. I mentioned it's potently upregulated by exercise. Exercise is a really good antidepressant, and in fact, um, uh, there may people who exercise regularly, and then have some injury, uh, and they ha- they stop exercising. That can often precipitate a episode of depression because it, you know they've been going along exercising, and all of a sudden, probably their BDNF levels are going down. Uh, so anyway, um, there is some evidence that even low direct current stimulation mm-hmm. or transcranial magnetic stimulation can increase BDNF levels. Yeah, caffeine. Caffeine will increase BDNF levels. Okay. There you go. Uh,
2: I'm uh, I'm intrigued about what you do to manage your BDNF levels, and I just I want to for uh, just warn everyone. Look you're an expert on aging, but you're also, the age you are, and you're a male, <laughs> and you have you know your genetic and lifestyle factors that we all have, so uh, this isn't a do what you do, but I wanna know what you do specifically for BDNF and NGF to keep yourself strong in those things, and then I wanna know why you do it. So, what's your personal practice for managing those? Do you even measure them?
0: Well, that's a problem, because uh, <laughs> we'd I did, we'd have to measure them in the brain, or at least the cerebral spinal right. fluid, So. Uh, It turns out that there is BDNF and NGF in the blood, but the levels of those trophic factors in the blood in animal studies are not well correlated with levels in the brain. It turns out that nerve cells are not the only cells that produce BDNF. Your heart cells, interestingly, produce BDNF, and there's other cells. But anyway, kind of the bottom line is Unfortunately, unlike ketones, which we can easily measure from a, a finger stick in blood, we can't measure BDNF or NGF. Uh, there, there's no way non-invasively to do that. So I, I'm just going by the, what the animal studies today. Sure, uh, sure. Uh, so again, my, my normal routine is don't eat breakfast, drink a lot of green tea in the morning don't drink green tea a couple hours before i exercise which i said's around midday say one o'clock okay because i found i can get some gastric reflux actually if i if if i drink tea right before i exercise uh but then anyway so then i exercise in the fasted state my diet during the six hour time window i eat is what most people would consider a variety of healthy foods vegetables fruits. A lot of nuts, yogurt. Uh, if I eat meat, it's usually fish, occasionally chicken, but not so much. Whole grains. I there's a lot of literature out there on whole grains, one way and the other, and you know there's the there are people who are sensitive to gluten and so on. But my take on the the scientific literature is that whole grains are generally good for health. So you eat whole grains. I eat whole grains. Eat. how do you stay in ketosis if you eat whole grains and fruit? Well, I go I pro- I go into ketosis in the morning. There you go.
2: I was hoping you were going to say that. Yeah. Uh we'll probably agree to disagree on whole grains for the average person, but some people tolerate them really well. Um, yeah. I know they they completely shred other people over time. Um so those are in the but, suspect but thing. Well,
0: I yeah. don't know, you know, so refined grains are not good, but the whole grains have a lot of fiber which was good for your gut microbiota. Unquestionably. And if you look at the the actual scientific studies, Mm -hmm. there's epidemiological evidence that whole grains are good. Even in the blue zones, uh, which most of your listeners will be familiar with, uh, regions in the world where people, uh, usually a large number of people live to be 100 Several of those areas, a lot of the calories are in whole grains, whether it's rice in the Okinawa diet or and so on. Um,
2: but are the Okinawans eating white rice or or brown rice? It's white. Yeah, it's white. Yeah, they, it's not a whole grain. They got rid of yeah. the lectins from the outside and yeah. you know, all the phytic acid well, and but, all the other stuff. But there
0: you go. It's, yeah. But they have, a, they have a low calorie diet. And one thing that hasn't been studied a lot in them, as far as I know, is, uh, well, as far as I know, no one's measured their ketone levels. So, oh, interesting.
2: Wouldn't that be fun?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it would be interesting in these blue zone people to look, you know, take blood at different time points throughout 24 hour period with their eating pattern. They're not they're not all eating three meals a day, you know, spaced regularly. Yeah. So I think I think whether they're having the metabolic switching occurring would be an important thing to know, uh, because what. We think that's much more important than diet composition, except yes, except for it's definitely good to avoid simple sugars. It's definitely good to avoid a lot of saturated fats. Uh, but the whole.
2: What about you know, fried polyunsaturated fats that were never in our diet either? Those seem worse than.
0: Saturated. Well, no, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the trans trans fats are worse. Yeah, or even just
2: yeah. heated, you know, yeah. the the stuff yeah. that your French fries are made in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's bad. Okay, so I'm uh, I'm following what you're saying, um, but I'm a little bit so. So on on your your overall sort of daily thing, you're you're eating um, a moderate amount of carbs. It sounds like you're not going going hog wild on the carbs. You're avoiding simple sugars in the in the afternoon evening, Uh, and in the morning you're eating nothing, so you can stay in that fasted state. and we also talk about ketones, and because you've developed this metabolic flexibility, um, you when you measure ketones in the morning, where are they?
0: The, the, keto, uh, the ketone strips that you can buy commercially to measure ketone levels—they're only sensitive down to around 300 micromolar. Below that, you, you can't they you can not can't tell. tell it. Right. And it turns out there's two phases of ketone production. Uh, that occur, uh, so it, as soon as the glycogen stores in the liver are depleted, you get an increase from way down low micromolar levels up to about two 300 micromolar, and they stay up in that level for like between 10 up to 24 hours, and then there's a second bigger increase in ketones where they go up into the millimolar levels. And that's over
2: what time frame was the second spike?
0: beginning about 24 hours of of complete fasting. Okay. Um so my ketone levels uh you know in the late morning they get up around the the 2 300 micromolar level and then actually I haven't measured them after exercise I should. Yeah. But, but I'm expecting they'll go up getting closer to the 1 millimolar level or above during the exercise. Um So I think a lot of people will find that if they use the ketone strips, even after 12, even 16 hours of fasting, they may may look and say, my ketones aren't up at all. But probably they are up. It's just below the lower limit of detection of those Mm -hmm. ketone strips.
2: And if you use a finger stick, you can get the point one level, right?
0: Not if you're using the ketone, the paper strips to measure.
2: No, I mean, the, so the, there's the, there's the pee strips and yeah. then there's the finger stick strips. What are you talking, which strip are you Either talking strip. about? Either strip. Oh, interesting. Even the finger stick.
0: Yeah. They, you have to use okay. uh, other methods uh, that are more sensitive, that there are commercially available, but they're from scientific. They're pricey. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, they're pricey. Okay.
2: That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in my uh, research and just my own experience, if I do brain octane, you know the the one of the four kinds of MCT that um, um, that actually after I noticed the difference, the studies came out and showed that it raises ketones more than other MCTs or shorter long chain fats, or at least probably butyric acid raises it as much. But anyway, it's it's the most powerful MCT whatever. ever. Um, I put that in my bulletproof coffee. I can have uh, donuts for dinner, <laughs> not that I actually eat donuts, but I can have whatever many carbs I want. Um, more like uh, probably sushi with white rice. Um, wake up in the morning, I can have my bulletproof coffee, and I can get to point uh, five uh, on a fingers finger strip. Yeah, right. And it it seems like there's That's there's good, yeah. in mice there's things that happen with. CCK and ghrelin at point three and point five, and, and those seem like to me the the kind of the magic levels where I don't care about food anymore and good stuff happens metabolically. But you're like the godfather of intermittent fasting here. So are my am I am I reading too much into the mice studies and my own experiences there, or are those special levels, or is point seven better, or like like what are the levels?
0: Oh well, well I guess well, my point in the this biphasic you know, an initial small, relatively small, but physiologically and probably uh, health beneficial, this lower level, like you're talking about 0.5 millimolar. My view, based on the animal studies and human studies and the time course that we know that ketones change, those early increases in ketones are important for Improving health and including improving cognition and suppressing appetite, which ketones do. Um, now your your MC, your bulletproof MCTs—they're five six carbon length. No, they're length, what, the eight are, carbon. The eight, the six eight, carbons, yeah, yeah.
2: unfortunately, they might be slightly more ketogenic. They taste terrible, and they're huge gastric irritants. So. One of the problems with yeah. a lot of MCTs, those aren't adequately filtered out. You get a little bit of those or some C-17s and, and then you get that burning throat or the real strong disaster pants. Uh, and I managed to engineer around that in the early days of Bulletproof, so uh, that's not, <laughs> not the issue it once was. You know what I'm talking yeah. about <laughs> from MCTs. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Sorry, it, it's the
2: aches, yeah. and that's later Kunain came along and said, oh look, four times more ketones than, um, than uh, actually what you'd get from coconut oil.
0: Yeah, Steve Cunane has done some – so we did work with the ketone ester in an animal model of Alzheimer's disease with – Yeah. – with Richard Beach. He sent a postdoc up to my lab, and we did the experiments with our mouse model of Alzheimer's. And then – so we published that in 2013, and then, as you know, Steve is using PET imaging, positron emission Mm -hmm. tomography using – Radio-labeled acetoacetate, which is one of the two main ketones elevated during fasting and extended exercise, the other being beta-hydroxybutyrate. But so he could image, he could look at the brains of humans and see how are the brain cells using the ketones for energy or are they using glucose for energy? And he he takes the yes. human these humans puts them on a ketogenic diet. And they they switch from using glucose to ketones. It's dramatic. Um, we think Alzheimer's, we know the nerve cells in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, the nerve cells that are still alive, they have a big problem using glucose. Yes. But we're pretty sure they can still use ketones.
2: You're talking about the neurons specifically.
0: Yeah, and in, in, in people with Alzheimer's. So... If people with Alzheimer's are eating carbohydrates and their ketones are low and their nerve cells cannot use the glucose very well and the ketone levels are low, their enter- the nerve cells ATP levels are low. However, if the Alzheimer's patients can increase their ketone levels, uh, in the mice we, models we know that, and the humans we think, at least based on the science, it's likely that they can still use the ketones. And mm-hmm. so Steve, Steve is involved in initial stages of a trial of the ketone ester in Alzheimer's patients. He already gave patients with mild cognitive impairment MCTs. Oh, yeah. Which I don't, was it your MCTs or was uh, it?
2: Yes, as far as I yeah. understand. He's okay. run multiple studies, but some of his studies are using specifically our MCTs, but I don't yes. know if that was the study that was using ours.
0: Right, and so as you know, he's already published a paper in patients with mild cognitive impairment, which is often a precursor to Alzheimer's, that is to say, uh, people with short-term memory problems that are diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, they're at increased risk for going on to develop Frank Alzheimer's. So that's, you know, this is exciting news. Uh, There's no treatments for MCI or Alzheimer's. We know exercise helps in in MCI patients. Doesn't hyperbaric uh, also help them? Hyperbaric or, or hypoxia? Uh, yeah, hyperbaric. I don't know. I think that would be a, not a good thing. This whole h- hormesis idea, then. Um, so if you increase oxygen levels, yeah. then the antioxidant defense pathways are are toned down, like the, the NRF two
1: pathway. Mm-hmm.
0: Whereas whereas mild hypoxia. Which is it, which uh-huh. is what occurs during exercise. Uh, yeah, that ramps up these intrinsic defense mechanisms. So, um, it it's interesting. I, it, I interviewed it, it,
2: Dr. Hart, who wrote yeah. the Oxygen Advantage, and is probably one of the the preeminent hyperbaric guys. We talked about wow. that. Uh, no, I understand there. There's there's two sides to the coin, but the reason it's interesting is that. Some of the other training that we do at Upgrade Labs, stuff I have right downstairs, is intermittent hypoxic training. Where you're actually on, a, on an exercise bike, breathing air that has no oxygen to drop your blood oxygen down to 87% to cause a hormetic reaction so your hemoglobin can let go of oxygen more easily later. And it, it seems like, just like with food, you're fasting sometimes, there's no damn food and sometimes there's only ketones, and sometimes there's glucose, and it seems like maybe for temperature, sometimes it's really hot, I'm in a sauna, sometimes it's really cold, I'm in cryotherapy, and then for oxygen, sometimes there's no air, and sometimes there's tons of air. It seems like teaching the body to- to Adapt. Survive yeah. and thrive in short-term extremes is a good strategy for living a long time and feeling good.
0: Yeah. You know, what, one, one um Stu- not one, we did multiple studies looking at the effects of alternate day fasting in rats on heart rate and blood pressure. Oh, wow. What'd you find? It's very dramatic, and it's very, dissimilar, it's very similar to what's seen with endurance athletes. They're with Not immediately. It takes two weeks to a month, and by then it's very clear. The animals on alternate day fasting, their resting heart rate, and blood pressure decrease, their heart rate variability increases.
2: Which is a very good
0: thing. It's a good thing, it's what you see in endurance athletes. What's happening is, uh, we found by measuring these things, uh, the alternate day fasting, similar to endurance training, increases the activity in the parasympathetic nervous system the parasympathetic your heart rate is controlled and blood pressure by uh, a balance and and shifting between parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system your parasympathetic nervous system slows resting slows heart rate reduces blood pressure your sympathetic nervous system increases heart rate and blood pressure and so what's happening with the intermittent fasting is that your heart becomes more adaptable to shifts in uh, load levels. For example, we did stress tests in the animals. We, uh, we subject them to a very stressful situation where essentially we put them in a straight jack where they can't move. Okay. And so that will cause a big activation of the sympathetic nervous system, the flight or fight response. Their heart rate will go way up. But in the animals on, that have adapted to alternate day fasting, their heart rate initially goes up when they're under this stressful situation, but then it comes down more quickly uh, after, oh, wow. after they adapt. So they adapt more to the stressful situation when they're adapted to intermittent fasting. So re-
2: resilience goes up. Yep. Cool. Well, let's switch gears a bit. We know what you eat, uh, we know how you exercise, Uh, And uh, how about rapamycin? Have you ever taken it? No, no. No? No. How about uh, the other anti-aging stuff? Growth hormone, testosterone, supplements. I I mean, you're a head anti-aging guy. You study all this stuff. You
0: don't use any of it? Uh, The only thing I'm taking now is uh, curcumin.
2: Okay. uh,
0: Because I got some knee osteoarthritis. And uh, vitamin D. And folic acid. That's it. I mentioned I eat a variety of vegetables, fruits, nuts, and so on sure. and so on. And you know the the studies we've done in animals uh, and others manipulating specific nutrients, and the NIA's lifespan studies um, compared to uh, daily calorie restriction or intermittent fasting. Um, none of those things have nearly as powerful effects. So that's what I'm basing it on.
2: I I got to agree with you there. Um, quality sleep and some yeah, intermittent fasting yeah. uh, and you know, moderate exercise, not even crazy exercise, are ginormous variables. Uh, and it, it does seem, though, I mean, I, James Clemens came on and we we talked a lot about you know, increasing autophagy, uh, including pharmaceutical stuff, you know, Aubrey de Gray, the, the different, you know, seven different pillars of aging. It, it feels like we are making progress on there. David Sinclair's coming on, and, you know, this NAD pathways on mitochondrial yeah. repair. I mean, it feels like this brave new world of, of anti aging tech, it's, it's all just coming online now. Or am I just a hopeless optimist?
0: Uh, I, you know, that rapamycin is very interesting. Um, the NIA has supported a three-center study of uh, lifespan uh, studies, where various people propose things to try: metformin, rapamycin, sulforaphane, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they've so far they've completed studies with thirty-some different test chemicals, and rapamycin is the only one that caused clear, highly statistically significant increase in average lifespan in the mice in all three studies. So in, in the animals, it's convincing that rapamycin can increase lifespan. It's the only single chemical intervention that's been clearly shown to increase lifespan. Um, and but What about metformin? I mean that's another one, right? Yeah, in, in the three center, there there are some published studies suggesting it increases lifespan, but in the three center study, where all three centers do, you know, they did metformin identically over a hundred mice each study, they didn't see a statistical interesting significant I, effect.
2: I am completely. Uh... Flummoxed by metformin. I, mean, I started taking it many years ago, and the first studies came out from biomarker pharmaceuticals. And then I quit because of the B12 and mitochondrial harm things and switched to an herb for AMPK. And uh, then I talked to James Clements recently. He said, Oh, that herb isn't so good either. So I go back and forth. But most of the anti aging clinicians I know are using it in their practice uh, and seeing you know, positive benefits, even though it isn't life extending. There's certainly you know, quality of life performance, and you know the labs look better uh, but i'm I'm torn on that one
0: yeah that the glucose glucose regulation okay. improved, certainly um but you mostly don't do any of that stuff you're like i
2: you know I, I don't eat for a while and I, I get some sleep and I get some exercise at the right time, which is at the end of a fast and and you're pretty much good to go with that,
0: yeah all right and and as far as I know, the people in the blue zones aren't taking any <laughs> metformin or Rapamycin or any of these other things, they're they're saving their money and still living to be a hundred. And it's uh, diet and lifestyle.
2: Yeah. That is true. Uh, at the same time, they also live in the blue zones, which uh, says if you don't live in a blue zone and you live in a highly polluted city, yeah. you might want to you know
0: yeah.
2: change what you do yeah. to match the environment, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, th- there's a bunch of theories. You know, there's. Glacial melt water with extra minerals in it. There's, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff around. You know, deuterium depleted. Some some fringe theories around that. There's, uh, you know, lifestyle stress, uh, and you know the diets are all over the place, from seventy percent fat to seventy percent carbs, and. I I'm having a hard time using epidemiology to get anything useful. Yeah, I
0: I, I, um, I don't like I don't like epidemiology.
2: Okay. Either because, yeah. So you so we're kind of in agreement. I want to know how it works, and I want to say if you do X, you reliably get Y, and then I'm going to do X, even if I'm not a mouse, and see if I get Y. And if so, I'm just going to have to deal with that because it's better than what I had before, which was random in and random out. Um, but that offends some academics because it's you know I'm n equals one, and I might be biased. I'm like yeah, I'm biased, but I feel good. So. Like, yeah. <laughs> how do you sort that out? I mean, I, I talked to Dr. Newhouse, who wrote the first paper in 1988 on nicotine for Alzheimer's uh, from Vanderbilt, and he's like,
0: "I've never used nicotine." I'm like, how can you study something for 30 years without taking a little hit of it once, right? Well, well, I do do intermittent fasting, right? Okay, and, and fair that's point. what I started. Point.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so that's your number one intervention, and you do it. Yeah. All right, so All I'll right. give you that. Right. Okay. Okay. The ways to raise ketones externally there's mCT oils um, and different ones do different things um, there's ketone salts and different ones do different things and dr. V raised the bioidentical uh, issue there I actually had a ketone salt product ready to ship and I canceled it because uh, like I'm not selling something that might feel good but cause harm later uh, but you know there are people who are advocates of them, especially short-term use and things like that. And then there's the esters, which Doctor Beach and I talked about. You talked about, and I actually synthesized some six years ago. But they're forty thousand dollars a kilo. I couldn't commercialize them, um, and they're still you know hundred dollars for three doses kind of things for, for for people to do it. Is there a risk? Uh, I, let me put it another way. There is a risk with blood sugar. If your blood sugar levels are high. It doesn't mean that you have more energy and you've done a good thing. It means you're not metabolizing blood sugar. If your ketone hmm. levels are exceptionally high, uh, is is there any sort of a similar situation where, hey, they're high because you can't metabolize them, right? You're going to drain them as fast as you can, or should we not worry about you know my my ketone levels are higher than your ketone levels, sort of things?
0: Yeah, uh, this is a good question. Um, we know that. With long-term fasts of weeks or even months, or do we know? Yeah, we assume that it's important. It's important that the ketones be high because the cells are using the ketones yeah. for energy. Um But as far as you know, ex- exogenously elevating ketones with MCTs or ketone ester, long-term, chronically, we don't know. Um, I my current thinking is intermittent elevations may be better than continuous, and you know the cycling between activating mTOR and inhibiting it, upregulating autophagy, then going into a growth mode. Uh, that switching back and forth is important, and, if, and as much as the ketones play roles in that, and, and in fact we showed ketones uh, can stimulate BDNF production. Oh wow! But but, you know, so, however, oh, this is very interesting. It turns out that BDNF is normally produced by neurons in an activity-dependent manner. That is, it's produced when a neuron is electrically active. Mm. And so it's produced when and where it's needed. And we found if, if we swamp neurons with BDNF continuously, it's actually bad for them. Oh, interesting! A- and we we did this in a published study where we were looking at the autonomic nervous system. Uh, remember, I said that intermittent fasting increases parasympathetic activity and reduces heart rate. So, and, and we had evidence there was a role for BDNF in that. But uh, it gets a little complicated. But the the parasympathetic neurons that send their axons to the heart, the neurons themselves are located in the brain stem. They use acetylcholine as a neurotransmitter. And so BDNF, if we uh, transiently apply BDNF to those neurons, they produce more acetylcholine, heart rate goes down. However, if, if we continuously swamp those neurons with BDNF, then... They deplete the acetylcholine, and the heart rate actually goes up. So my point is, your your systems are very intricate and are producing things where and when they're needed, and it may not be good to continuously swamp the system. So we don't know for sure with ketones, but my intuition says maybe it's not such a good idea to just have ketones up. 24-7 Twenty
2: four seven chronic. I'd say the the jury's out on it. I've I've gone from using you know brain octane uh, just in my morning coffee to right, I pretty much put it on every meal, it, but my ketone levels are generally not above .3 except in the morning. Uh, so I think they're higher than physiological, but they're not high. Uh, and what I feel like that does is that affects my ghrelin uh, levels, so I'm just not hungry. And so I can go long times without food. My brain, it just feels effortless. And we know that your neurons, uh, neurons will use ketones even in the presence of glucose because of the studies you talked about earlier. But the glial cells, you know, the repair cells in the brain, uh, and I know I'm simplifying what glial cells do there, but they they like glucose more than ketones, right? So that's why I'm really concerned about the, the the keto bro diets out there where, you know, if you eat another carb again, you're a bad human being kind of thing because it, it feels like there's a role for carbs.
0: I, I think there is too, Dave. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, there was a arti- uh, recently published study. Uh, it, it's a, uh, it suggests the paleo diet's not good long-term. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea just to, eat only fats and protein. In fact, pro- too much protein is definitely bad from the standpoint of aging.
2: Uh, oh yeah, the paleo diet is, they're burned protein and way yeah. too much protein. Um, in fact, my my new anti-aging book uh, that's coming out soon, I've read a lot about protein restriction. In fact, pr- uh, there's one day a week of protein fasting um, was part of the original Bulletproof diet because it increases autophagy yeah. to have less than 15 yep. grams. But for you, what kind of protein is worst and what kind is best?
0: <laughs> well, you know, usually in, in animal meats, you've got a mixture of fats and protein, and so uh, the fish story is strong. You know, I, you, you can't go wrong eating fish. Yeah. Ideally, some of the smaller fish, with regards to the mercury issue, but you know, red meat. Yeah. You don't need it at all. Uh, you get plenty of protein. <laughs> you know, ev- everything's all goofed up. We Our, our parents told us uh, uh, you won't, don't get any dessert, which is sugar, unless you finish your meal, right? So eat all, eat a lot, overeat, and then you can have your sugar. Yeah. And, so you, you overeat? Know, you got to eat your meat, drink your milk to get protein. You know, so kids are getting too much protein. The umptor pet, mTOR pathway mm-hmm. is overactivated. their cells aren't removing the garbage right. um, and, and in fact the, the huge problem that's hard to tackle is how to change the family environment kids habits their eating habits whether or not they exercise throughout their life for many people it's determined by what their parents are doing at what age should you start intermittent fasting your kids I can't. I can't make a definitive <laughs> statement on that. Um,
2: if you had to bet, what would you bet?
0: Once they're sexually mature.
2: Okay, so uh,
0: uh, basically after puberty. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I. Uh, uh, that, that's generally what I'm doing. I don't intermittent fast with my kids. We'll, we're probably going to do once a month where we don't. We do a 24 hour fast with kids just so they can see that we do it, and so they can toughen up a little bit. And like, you're not going to die if you don't have it. Uh, And I've used intermittent fasting as a threat. You know, when they say I'm not gonna eat my broccoli, I'm like, oh, you've chosen intermittent fast with me. Let's all put our food away. And then they eat their broccoli and like the the conversation's over. But, uh, so it feels like it would not be a good thing to do that to a metabolism of a growing child, but we don't know, it might be fantastic.
0: Yeah, and if you go from an evolutionary perspective again, um, certainly kids, uh, infants and young children used to nurse you know, breast milk a lot longer than they do now. Yeah, and but on the other hand, true. Yeah, you know, once they're weaned, they're probably eating eating intermittently uh, before the agricultural revolution. But I want to I want to make one comment. That's I was I gave a talk at uh, one of the annual meetings for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, and this this woman came up to me after my talk and she said, "That was a great talk." and she said, "I'm glad I came to your talk. I'm so relieved now because my son, who's in high school uh he, he's not eating breakfast he hasn't been eating breakfast for a year, and I've been worried about him uh He's a straight a student he's active in sports he's a really good athlete you know but he just he hasn't eaten breakfast and um so she said, I'm relieved now because you know he's doing well and and I'm not gonna worry anymore about whether or not he eats breakfast.
2: Oh, that's great. I I love that. And yeah, just a little bit of metabolic flexibility and different metabolisms and different things at different ages too, so I'll go with you there. Mark, I've got a final question for you and I, I'm intrigued at your answer because you have such a deep expertise in things like this. Um, I've been pretty public on my, uh, I'm counting on guys like you and, and many other uh, many other friends Uh, to expand over the next 100 years or so, expand the maximum human limit so I can reach at least 180. But I'm fully expecting skepticism from you there. My question for you, though, is a little bit more personal. How long do you think you're going to live, given what you know about aging, what your colleagues know, and the tools you have access to? What's feasible for you? What do you think is going to happen assuming a truck doesn't hit you?
0: Yeah, so my genetics is kind of mixed. Uh, Although it's hard hard to really... So my mom and her and her siblings, my mom actually died at sixty-seven, but she was a two-pack-a-day smoker, and that, that whole epigenetics thing uh, will get you. And <laughs> and uh, had arthritis and was on prednisone for years and so on and so on, and she got a knee replacement, got sepsis, then had a hemorrhagic stroke. My father lived to, 90, to be ninety. Okay and i'm i'm more like him from the standpoint of my um i guess you'd say um skinny as, as is my you know my brother and sister are pretty skinny our two kids are pretty skinny, so um would be happy if I made it to ninety i i have no you know if i if i made it to a hundred that'd be wonderful, but i'm not counting on it. Don't,
2: don't you think you can do better than your parents? I mean, we know more than your parents did. We have better tools. We have well, radioactive
0: imaging. We have DNA. Yeah. We have mitochondria. You know, so in the animal studies, the the biggest impact of the intermittent fasting is on average lifespan.
2: Mm-hmm. But not total lifespan.
0: And, and not maximum, although there's some effects. So then the other thing is health span. Yeah, you know, that that and, matters more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I'm starting to i mentioned get some orthopedic issues now, which is really my only health issues right now
2: uh It's probably a lack of red meat, I mean that's what your mom said.
0: <laughs> well, you know she had really bad arthritis too, so I have uh, <laughs> you right well, had, at an earlier mom, right. age, so um, yeah. yeah uh it, it, you know I, it does happen I, I think we should think about future generations. Right. right. Think, think about your kids. You know. Okay. How, what, what's feasible for future generations? What? So maybe
2: your. How many children? How many kids? Yeah. How long are my kids going to have a chance of living? Well,
0: they have a better chance of living longer than you did. Just, just as we, I, I would say, I definitely have a better chance of living uh, longer than the average of my father and and mother. Oh yeah. We we need something new though to get to extend maximum lifespan for every you know, rapamycin, I don't know, maybe. But again, the animal studies remember that the control animals that the rapamycin treated group being compared to are overfed sedentary animals. Okay. They you know and and remember that's also the control animals for the intermittent fasting studies is the control group has continuous access to food. They're in small cages, don't get much exercise, and and a lot of strains of animals, they become obese and even will become insulin resistant as they age. So the animal studies say if we take relatively sedentary, probably overindulgent animals, and we put them on intermittent fasting, combine it with exercise a little, helps a little more, we can increase their lifespan. Rapamycin can increase their lifespan, but what what we need to do is start combining, say, intermittent fasting with rapamycin. Can we, yeah, you know, can we get a further increase? And I don't know. I'm 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 not sure we will.
2: Yeah, we we definitely don't know until we try it. And I I look at the sum total of all the people doing all the research on all the pathways and and just the ability to learn things from machine learning. I'm I'm pretty optimistic that my kids are going to live a lot longer than I am. And yeah. uh, I, I, it feels like the last 30 years of so. work uh, is now accessible on my iPhone, and it wasn't 25 years ago. We had microfish. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, it's so much easier to. Oh yeah, there is a connection there. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I,
0: I, I wrote my, my PhD dissertation was on a typewriter using whiteout to correct my wow. typing errors.
2: The world has changed. Well, I hope the world of anti-aging changes uh, as well, and I am grateful for your contribution around this, and I, I totally believe you're right. This not eating <laughs> is one of the key things. Uh, that doesn't mean being hungry all the time, but it means not eating some of the time, so I, I'm grateful that you came on the show. Uh, people who are interested in your work, probably the easiest way to find you is uh Googling Mark Matson, and you're the first couple pages of results. Uh, and uh, your TED Talk is totally worth watching, and I'm just you know, thanks, thanks for the decades of work on anti-aging and fasting and neurology. I, I find it fascinating, and you've, you've done a good thing.
0: Well, thanks, Dave. I've enjoyed it a lot, and you keep up the good work, too. Um, I, I, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, there's a big need for translating this basic research into practical things that people can apply to their own lives.
2: Well, I will keep doing my best. I'll ask uh, the hard questions. And uh, just to reiterate for people listening, uh, I think we're both serious. If someone out there wants to do a PhD or some other kind of research project on antioxidants and intermittent fasting, it's a wide open area that totally needs attention. And I never thought about that until today. So uh, you you stimulated a new idea. Thank you. Okay, Dave. All right. If you like today's episode, you know what to do head on out there and uh, skip breakfast. You'll like your life better uh, if you do that, most likely. And if you hate your life when you skip breakfast, you gotta figure out, all right, what's going on with my metabolism because I'm probably not as resilient as I'd like to be. And then you can work on that. Uh, And if you wanna know how to do that, there's a whole variety of episodes of Bulletproof Radio. We talked about a few of them today. Uh, Listen to this one again, get the show notes. Uh, You could read The Bulletproof Diet. Uh, You could read Headstrong. I talk about intermittent fasting in both of those books. Uh, And there's just so much knowledge available right now on the blog uh, and in other places. And really, if you don't know what else to do, wake up, skip breakfast, don't put sugar in your coffee, don't put artificial sweeteners in it, and see what happens. And you just might be okay.